Now, as we get started on this cold Sunday morning, I have a little bit of a brain teaser for you guys to kind of get us moving a little bit, okay? So it's a little bit of a competition. I want you to raise your hand in just a moment. I'm going to put a, an image up on the screen, and I want to see if you can tell what it is, okay? And I got a special gift for the person that guesses first. Ready? One, two, three. What is this image? Jake Russell, you get a hug from me on Valentine's Day. Congratulations. Yeah. It's a car, right? Now, do you need to connect all those dots to tell that that's a car? Not if you're Jake Russell, right? You can just, you look at that and you know that's a car. Now you're thinking, what's this have to do with anything? Well, since the beginning of the year, we've been reading through scripture together using an amazing app called the Read Scripture app. We read a couple of chapters every day. And today we're on day 45 of that reading plan. And if you've been following along with us early in the book of Genesis, you might not understand every detail of every story, but like the story of creation and Adam and Eve and Noah's Ark can kind of feel like a kid's picture like this. You can get the big picture and understand how the dots connect, right? But 45 days in, there's a lot of dots to connect. And the deeper we get into the Old Testament, it's going to start to look and feel a little bit like this. Like this. There we go. Can anybody tell who that is? Jake Russell. Mario, right? You can tell that that's Mario. There's some more detail and some contour. But there's 130 dots here, right? To tell that that's Mario. But again, we're 45 days in. We've read through the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Today, we're halfway through the book of Numbers. And the further we get into the Old Testament, it's going to start to look and feel like this. Can anybody tell what that is? I see my son raising his hand, but he knows what it is. What is it? The Mona Lisa. Wow, you're the second person. Did you know, did you know that? Well... Man, you got, that's amazing. I didn't think anybody would guess that. So that's pretty amazing right now. This is super detailed. I mean, there are thousands of color-coded little dots to connect there. But does, not, does reading the Old Testament kind of feel like this? Like, how is this connected, and where are we going next, and why does this matter? Well, today we're going to be in the book of Numbers, and I want to help to connect some dots for you so you understand why the story we're looking at today connects to the bigger picture. So if you have a Bible, turn to Numbers 13. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a Bible in the back of the room that you can take and snag. If, if you pick it up, it's yours. So that's our gift to you. But while, before we get to Numbers 13, let me go back to Genesis chapter 12, because God makes a promise to an old man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And this is the promise that God made to Abraham. He said, I'm going to give your family, I'm going to make your family huge. You're going to be a mighty nation. I'm going to give your family a special land to live in. And one day the whole world will be blessed through your family. Okay, huge promise. That promise is so huge and so important. Everything after that ties back to that promise. Everything in scripture. If you get lost, just go back to Genesis 12 and say, what does it have to do with this right here? Now, if you flip one chapter over to Genesis 13, we learn roughly where Abraham was living when this promise was given. So Abram went to live near the trees of Mamre at Hebron or Hebron, however you might say that. So this is really cool. Now, I'm going to connect some dots for you on using a, using a simple four-point map. So check this out. Hebron, if you, if you get on Google Maps and you type it in, it's going to drop you right there. So roughly, this is where Abraham was when God says, I'm going to make your family into a great nation and give them a special land, Okay. Now, if you keep reading a few chapters later into Genesis 15, God repeats this promise to Abraham, but he says, I need you to know that your future family that doesn't exist yet, well, they're going to have some pretty significant challenges. The Lord said to Abraham, know for certain 
that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Now, this is pretty fascinating because God just predicted the entire book of Exodus to Moses or to, to Abraham while he was living out the book of Genesis. I don't know about you, I find this fascinating because if you keep reading through the rest of Genesis, you learn that Abraham's family becomes known as the Israelites and they move down to Egypt where they are enslaved for how long? 400 years, just like God predicted. That's actually point number two on our map. Let's bring our map back up here. God makes a promise in Hebron. They go, to, they go down to uh, Egypt where they get enslaved. And then along the way, we learn that God calls this man named Moses to lead them out of their slavery into the promised land. And so they leave here and they go down here and they part the Red Sea. This isn't exactly where it happened. This is for visual effect, okay? So they go down and they cross over the Red Sea and eventually they're gonna make their way down here to the desert of Sinai at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is a pretty big place. When they got to Mount Sinai, we read this in Exodus and Leviticus, God set the mountain on fire, gave them the law and the 10 commandments. It was a pretty big deal. And what we're gonna see today as we jump into numbers is they've been here for a little while. So this, is a, this four point summary gives us an overview of what we've read over the last 45 days. And I want you to pay attention to how the book of Numbers begins because there it starts right here in that desert of Sinai. It says this, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the, after the Israelites have come out of Egypt. So they've been free for about a year now. This is an important timestamp. They camped out in the desert of Sinai for roughly one year with the Lord. And then in verse two, listen to what God says. He says, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man name by name, one by one. So when we get to the book of Numbers, we learn it's been a year. They're learning how to live as free people. And it's been a quite a year for the Israelites. They were led out of slavery. They crossed the Red Sea. When they looked over their shoulders, they watched the waters collapse on the Egyptians that were chasing them. That was probably a big deal, right? And every day God provided bread for them and water for them in the middle of the desert. And when they complained about bread, God said, okay, I'll give you some meat to eat. He was taking care of them in their every move. He led them by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. He protected their every step. And then in Leviticus, we learn this. This is so important. God says, I'm gonna come and live in the camp with you. And that's the whole thing about God's presence living at the tabernacle. He wanted them to know, I am not just for you. I am with you. I am physically here with you. And he showed them their love, his, his love and his faithfulness. And you would think that the Israelites would be like, this is amazing. But if you've been reading, if you've been reading, have you picked up on a pattern with the Israelites? Do they always cheer God on? No, they grumble and they complain a lot. And that pattern of grumbling and complaining continues through the book of Numbers. In fact, it seems to kind of spike a little bit, but God is so patient and he is so kind, and he is so gracious to them. And now that they're entering into their second year, God has come to Moses and said, hey, I want you and your brother Aaron to go and do a census, okay? You like that? That's just for you. I'm glad you like that. Go take a census of the people. And why would they take a census? Why would you need to do that? Well, the census was of everyone 20 years old and older 
so they could have an army that could follow God's lead as they pushed the people that were in the promised land out of the promised land. So that's how the book of Numbers begins, and that gets us up to Numbers chapter 13, where we are today. And I want you to pay attention to how Numbers 13 begins. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. So they've taken their census, and now God says, it's time for us to get ready to move out of this desert of Sinai. Choose 12 men and send them into the land so they can spy it out, and they can bring back a report so the people can know what the land is going to be like. Now, here's what's interesting. They went up and they explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rahab towards Labo Hamath, and they went up through the Negev, and where'd they come? That's a pretty important dot, right? Let's go back to the map. Those 12 spies, okay, they're down here, and they go and spy out, and it says they literally came to Hebron, where God had made a promise to Abraham all those generations before. If you're one of those 12 spies... You are literally standing at the spot that God promised to give you and your family that is now a great nation. You are living out history and prophecy all at the same time. Now, this would have been a powerful reminder, but here's what I want you to know. This promise that God had given to the Israelites had been repeated several different times in our reading so far, at least 10 different times. So they knew that God had promised this land to Abraham. They knew that they were going to take possession of it, and now... The, the spies are there and they get to scope it out for 40 days. And, and the land was so rich and so fruitful, we learn that they cut off a cluster of grapes that they found in the land and it was so huge that it took two grown men to carry it on a pole between the two of them. These aren't like the weak little grapes you get at Aldi at Kroger around here. These things are like this big apparently. Grown men carrying them on a pole. For 40 days, they scope out the land. It would have been amazing. And it finally comes time for them to come back and to share their report with Moses in the crowd. And look at what it says. This is the report. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. So all the people could see these giant grapes. And on top of that, the spies are saying, it is amazing. You can't even imagine how fruitful it is. Now, I've heard this, this phrase a land flowing with milk and honey a lot, and I thought I knew what it meant, but I looked it up just to be safe. And it speaks to how fertile this land is. The reference to milk suggests that many livestock could find pasture there. And the reference to honey suggests vast farmland where bees could draw nectar and continue to pollinate and and expand over the land. This is the perfect place for God's chosen people to come and live and to be the nation that he promised that they would be, right? It's all wrapped up in this promise. They, they knew what to expect. Now, wouldn't that be exciting if you were in the Israelite camp? You've camped out in the desert for a year. You're ready to get moving. It seems like it's time to go. The spies come back with this giant fruit. The, the report is amazing. But, but some of the spies said, yeah, 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 but. And this is a big but. Look at verse 28. But the people who live there, The people are powerful and the cities are fortified and they're very large. And if you jump down to verse 31, it says, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And some of the spies began to spread a bad report about the land among the people. Now, this isn't good. 
You might be familiar with this story from Sunday school growing up. There were 12 of them. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, two of these men, stood in front of the Israelite community and said, don't, no, 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 no. Of course, we can't do it, but God can. God's got us this far. God promised the land to Abraham. He will get us into the land. Let's just trust and obey him. But then you had these other 10 that said, no, 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 we can't. Forget about God. Forget about God. We can't do this. This is too big for us. And now the Israelite community has a decision to make. Are they going to listen to the two men that are saying, God can do this, or the 10 negative Karens that are saying that they can't? I mean, they have, a, they have a decision in front of them. What are they going to do? Are they going to trust the visible evidence of the fruit in front of them? Or are they going to run away in fear? Here's what it really boils down to. Do they believe that God had the power to be faithful to the promise that he had made and continued to fulfill? Or was it time for them to take matters into their own hands? That's really what it comes down to. And I want you to stop for a moment and put yourself in their shoes. There are promises that are made to us throughout Scripture where God says he wants to bless us and and keep us and help us to thrive in life, but those promises hinge on obedience and faithfulness. And so we know what the promises are. We just don't necessarily like the obedience side of it. And instead of trusting God at his word, we listen to that little voice in the back of our head that says, you can't do this. Don't even bother trying. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. And doggone it, people don't like you. You could never, ever, ever do this. Why even bother trying? And so what do you do? Do you choose the evidence of the fruit or do you run away in fear? Well, I want you to see how the Israelites respond in Numbers 14, verse 1. That night all the members of the community raised their voices and they wept aloud. Now let's just stop here. Have you ever got bad news and you had like an immediate response? Like, oh no, how could this happen? Or maybe you physically cried. I think that's what's happening right here. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's a natural response. But they didn't just weep aloud. They went on in verse two. It says, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? They begin blaming God of sabotage. Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And listen to this in verse four. They said to each other, why should we choose a leader? Why shouldn't we just choose a leader and go back to Egypt? They're like, forget you, Moses. Forget God. We're out of here. We are done. So what is happening right now? Well, what is happening is that their faith, it was crumbling right before their eyes. It was falling apart right in front of them. Even after everything God had done for them to prove I am faithful, I will get you through, I will carry you through. And so they start complaining about where they are and what they don't have. And here's the problem. Their cries turn to complaints. Now let's distinguish between the two. A cry is a deep lament, a plea for help in the middle of our suffering. When my son was a toddler, if you've ever had a toddler, you can relate to this. They cry about a lot of things, don't they? And so my wife and I learned that if we could say, hey, do you want mommy and daddy to hold you? And he'd hold his arms up and we'd scoop him up. And he caught on to this pattern 
And he did started doing something really sweet. When he would get upset, he would just come up to us and say, I want to hold you, Daddy. I want to hold you. This is what a cry looks like. I'm, I'm helpless. I need you to help me right now. Okay? That's a cry. But then a complaint, on the other hand, is a verbal raid against the injustices that we perceive being afflicted upon us. This is like what middle schoolers do, right? How dare you? Don't you know who I am? I deserve better than this. And if this is the body language of a cry, well, then this is the body language of a complaint. Why are you doing this to me? And and the difference between a cry and a complaint can really be boiled down to trust and faith. In crying out, we express, God, I believe that you're in control. I don't like what what I'm going through, but I believe that you can guide me through. I believe you have the power to get me out of here. I believe that you will sustain me. But a complaint says, God, really, you're God? This is, the best you can do right now is this? Are you kidding me? Thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to take this on my own. That sounds strong, doesn't it? But don't we do that? It's not just the Israelites. This is something that we all do. And this is a hard truth that I think we need to accept. We are all going to find ourselves in a a, a faith situation like this, like the Israelites, and we're going to have to choose, what are we going to do? Are we going to trust in God's strength and God's promises? Are we going to say, I think I'll just try this one on my own again? And in this particular instance, what do the Israelites do? They say, we're out. It's time to go back to slavery. That was way better in spite of all the great things that God has done for us. But the problem is, in those testing times, we can actually grow and be strengthened. But we got to be careful not to run through them or avoid them. And I just want you to know, you're looking at a guy, I don't sprint very well, but if there's trouble, I can run pretty fast. And I think that's what we tend to do, right? Now, how many of you know somebody whose faith amazes you? Like the more pressure that is put on them, the more their faith in Jesus shines out. It's, it's an amazing thing to watch, right? And no matter what happens, they just, God's going to carry me through to the very end. The person that comes to mind for me on this is my mother-in-law, Christy. Her faith with Jesus was so real that when she talked about Jesus, you would swear he had just been there to have coffee with her. And I wanted a faith like that so bad. Well, then she gets this cancer diagnosis. And you know what? Her faith in Jesus grew, and she started drawing people around her, doctors and nurses and neighbors, to Jesus. But you know what? It'd be easy to say, well, she was just born like that, but she wasn't. She learned to build that faith by trusting God every step of the way until the very, very end. And even at her funeral, we wept, but we celebrated because we knew where she was because of her faith in Jesus. Now, we all want to be there. And sometimes when you're new in your faith, like you can read scripture and even Leviticus makes sense to you. And you're like, oh, that is so, those details are so amazing to me. God, you're so good. Or when you sing a worship song, it feels like God is right in front of you and you can just see the fire of his presence. But then sometimes we get in a rut, don't we? And the newness wears off. And the thought of being part of a church family is like, why bother? Everybody's fake. I don't feel like singing. I don't want to read God's word. It's all boring to me. I mean, we've all been there. We don't have to pretend that we haven't. We'll probably be there at some point in the future. And just like the, uh, just like the Israelites, I think when we get there, we need to realize we're in the wilderness. 
And the wilderness isn't a fun place to be in. But that's where God can do some of his very best work. Now, I want you to listen to what Jesus' younger brother, James, says about these wilderness experiences in life. He says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James wants us to know that when our faith is tested, it's an opportunity for it to grow. In fact, James says, here's rule number one. There's a pattern. You need to just acknowledge that you will be tested. There will be trials in life. And then he says, trials can lead to perseverance and perseverance will lead to maturity. But if you're always running away from the challenge, if you're always bailing on God in the moment, you will have the faith of a toddler, which really isn't a whole lot of faith. Our faith is strengthened when it's tested. And the bigger the test, the more painful it might feel, but the more powerful the results will be on the back end of things. And so here we are in Numbers 14, the Israelites are complaining against God. They're accusing God. They even try to stone Moses. And God says, uh-uh, I've had enough. And God shows up and says, Moses, get out of the way. I am going to destroy every last one of them. I am done. And you know what Moses does? He falls face down on the ground and he begs God and says, oh God, you're too faithful. You are too gracious. You are too good. Please, will you please forgive these evil, wicked people? And you know what God does? Because of his friendship with Moses, he relents. But there is a compromise. Look at Numbers 14, verse 20. The Lord replied to Moses, I have forgiven them as you've asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory in the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. And here is the stinger. Verse 34. For 40 years... One year for every day that your spies went into the land to tell you how good it was for 40 years, you will wander in the wilderness and you accuse me of being against you. Well, now for 40 years, you're going to know what it's like. I don't think God's messing around. Those are some really strong words, aren't they? Because of their disobedience and their lack of faith in God, the entire adult population of Israel Everyone over the age of 20, everyone that was counted in numbers and numbers one, wiped out. Now, I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you're over the age of 20. <laughs> Me too. We ain't making it in. This story really hits, doesn't it? There were two exceptions to the rule. Joshua and Caleb, the two spies that said, guys, what are you doing? He's got us this far. God's going to get us in there. Don't do this. They got to go in with everybody else's kids and grandkids, but the rest of us got wiped out along the way. Now, I want to show you visually what this looks like. Remember our map from earlier? They were right here. God sent the spies up there. They came back and said, we've seen it. Let's go. Should have taken them about two weeks. 40 years later, 
Does anybody in here want to make a 40-year mistake that's going to ruin your life and your family? 40 years. So here's what their journey ended up looking like. They go up here and they wander, and look, they are right on the doorstep. God took them right up and said, sorry, you can't go in. And here's why. You're not ready for the promise of the promised land. But I want to develop your children. I want to use this 40-year period to develop your children and your grandchildren to be different than the Egyptians, to be different than all the other people that we're going to have to go in and push out. I want you to be the people that I have called and created you to be. And so this is what happened to the Israelites. Now, it's easy for us to read these Old Testament stories and think, man, God is the worst. He is so mean. He is so harsh. He is so vindictive. But when you take the time to connect the dots, you realize, was it God's fault? It was the disobedience and the faithlessness of the people. And God said, you know what? I'll give you what you want. I don't think you want that, but I'm going to give it to you so you can see, you can trust me. I'll get you there. I love uh, how the Bible Project folks quoted this in, in their video this week. They said, God is faithful to his promises, but he will let his people walk away to face the consequences. And sometimes, if we are not careful, he will give us exactly what we want. And in this particular instance, that's what he did with the Israelites. He spent the next 40 years developing their children and grandchildren to be ready to take possession of that land. But he had some important character-shaping moments that he needed to spend with them in the meantime. So thankfully, God was patient and he was gracious, but an entire generation of people had to be wiped out. And you know what? What God did for the Israelites, God will do for us because whether or not we want to admit it, we're just like the Israelites. He's got amazing promises for us. He has said, I, I want to give you the best life you can imagine, but sometimes we find ourselves in a wilderness because of something we've done or something that's been done to us. And you might be in the wilderness because of a bad decision that you've made that haunts you every day and you just feel like it's going to follow you around forever. You might be in the wilderness because of an addiction that enslaves you and it threatens to define you forever in all the wrong ways. You might find yourself in a wilderness because of a broken relationship, a career that went down in flames, but does that mean that God isn't there with you? Maybe you, find like, you feel like you're in the wilderness because of the madness of this last year. I mean, hasn't the, this last year felt like wilderness? Everything's been turned upside down. We don't know where we're going. We're wandering around. Where are we going to go? Has it ever occurred to you that this might be a time where God is saying, I want you to be different? I want you to be different. I want my people to live differently. Now, I'll be the first to say, I'm not winning at this but I think we're in a season where God is saying, pay attention, don't disobey, learn to be faithful. There's nothing wrong with wanting God to pull us out quickly, but it might take a while because he wants to shape our character on the journey. But I do have some good news for us. In light of all of the hardship of the wilderness season that we feel like we're in, because of Jesus, all of us, every human alive right now has the hope of entering into the ultimate promised land that is heaven one day. You see, in the Old Testament, the Israelites had their eyes set on a physical land in the Middle East known as the promised land. But now that Jesus has come, 
He promises that anyone that has put their trust and faith in him can be forgiven and restored in their relationship with God. Let me connect an important dot for you. Back in Genesis 12, when God promised Abraham, I'm gonna make your family into a mighty nation and I'm gonna give them a, a land to live in, he said, also, by the way, just so you know, one day the whole world will be blessed through your family. It was a prophecy that the Messiah would be born as a descendant of Abraham. And guess what all the New Testament writers tell us? Yes, his name is Jesus. And guess what? He is a better Moses. Because just like Moses, he pleads to God on our behalf. He goes to his heavenly father and says, yes, I know they are rebellious. Yes, I know they accuse you of all kinds of things. Yes, I know they are faithless. But father, I think they're worth it. I, will, I am willing to lay down my life so that they can be forgiven. Will you please relent? And the Father agreed on our behalf. And so for those of us today that are followers of Jesus, we need to remember we are just like the Israelites. Apart from the Holy Spirit of God, there is nothing good inside of us. And we receive the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus and what he has done for us. But if you're here or if you're tuning in and you're not following Jesus, you know a lot about Jesus, but you've never surrendered to him, I want you to know he extends an offer to every single one of us to know him personally. It begins by trusting in the sacrifice that he has made, admitting that you are a sinner, you have rebelled against him, you will continue to rebel against him, but when you put your trust in him and you agree to be baptized into him, your sins are forgiven. The Spirit of God lives inside of you. You are restored with your Heavenly Father and you receive the promise of getting to go into the ultimate promised land in heaven one day. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? But it begins by admitting I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to pay for my sins. Now, as we wrap up, we're gonna sing a song together that talks about the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And for those of us that follow Jesus, we can sing these words, and even though we know we fall short, we can say, God, you are so good to me. You're so good. But if you are not following Jesus, I want you to listen to the words of these songs. I know you can claim them. You just have to surrender your faith to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I wanna thank you for these ancient words, these ancient stories. And when you spoke to Abraham, you made a promise in a really specific place. And the spies got to go and see that place and it was all part of your unfolding plan, but your word proves that you are true and that you're faithful. You make promises and predictions and prophecies way out in advance so we can know we can trust you. Would you help us not to be like the Israelites and to be faith, faithless? Would you help us to learn to persevere so that we can mature in our faith and we can live differently than the world around us? Would you help those of us that follow you, Jesus, to remember we cannot do this on our own. It is by the power of your Holy Spirit living inside of us. I wanna pray for my friends that are tuning in or that are with us today in the room that know about you, Jesus, but they have never repented of their sin and put their trust in you. I pray that you would speak directly to them right now and you would draw them to take that next step, that they would surrender to you, they would be baptized into you, Jesus, and they would celebrate the new life that comes by the cleansing of your spirit and what you've done for us. Jesus, thank you for pleading with the Father on our behalf. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.